Say it. <laughs> Preach it, young lady. <laughs> well, it is good to see so many shining faces here this morning. Ah, and the Lord has given us a little sunshine as well. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It is good to see you all. You know, <clears throat> every time I hear the word miracle because I watched way too much television, I remember Seinfeld. Is, is anybody else with me on that? It's a festivist miracle. Well, of course, they're kind of poking fun at miracles. It's poking fun at religion in general. Poking fun at faith in general. A made-up religion, made-up holiday, all that kind of stuff. Well, what we're talking about here is from the living, active Word of God. It's not made up. It's not cleverly devised fables. And, well... While I would love for lots of more things to be funny, including me, it's not funny. It's real. It's serious. But there is great joy in it, as you will see today. So, I would like to, <clears throat> again, get into the Scriptures with you. That's what we do here on Sunday morning. We get into the Word, which is why we have this Hebrews 4.12, would you like to repeat it with me? The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Okay, I want to recap with you a little bit from last week as we go through the book of Acts, which is the founding of the Church of Christ, not the denomination, the Church of Christ, the universal church. The title today, of course, is Peter's Apostolic Authentication. We'll get to that a little bit about what do I mean by that. Um, in fact, why don't I stop for a minute and tell you about it. When I was in the military, we would have communication uh, via radio frequencies, and we would have to authenticate when someone was contacting us to determine if, in fact, it was they were who they said they were. Because otherwise, enemies, when you're out uh, on the battlefield, they can get somebody that sounds very American on the radio and call and say thus and such and give you disinformation, misinformation, and lead you right off the track and do really serious, dangerous damage. And so we had these codes in our authentication book where we would determine if, in fact, this person was really one of ours, was on our side. And if they didn't have the right code, we knew it was somebody horning in on our frequency and uh, they were trying to give us some false information. Well, that's part of what's going on here in today's passage. There is authentication going on. Now let's review a little bit about what we covered last week. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Notice the four elements there. Also often known as the four pillars of Christianity. That is, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is the New Testament. And to fellowship. And to the breaking of bread. And to prayer. Breaking of bread being specifically the Lord's Supper for believers only, and to prayer. This is kind of the focal one. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. There was a reverence for what the Holy Spirit was working out in them. And many wonders and signs were taking place. Through who? Who's that again? Through the apostles. Through the apostles. It was not happening through everyone. It needs to be made crystal clear. We have a tendency to think that in the first century church that miracles were happening all over the place through everyone. That was not the case, and I will show that. Verse 44, And all the believers were together and had all things in common, and they would sell their property and possessions and share them with all to the extent that everyone had need. That is not socialism, that is not communism. It was voluntary and it was temporary. Verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. You see, they were, even though the Jewish religious establishment was not showing favor to them at all. During this time of the first century church, the very founding of it, they had great favor, and you'll see some of the reasons why, with the people in general. God was giving them favor, and you'll see how as well. So, with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord... The Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now you remember last week and the week before, we covered Peter's sermon in which 3,000 in a single day were brought to salvation in Christ. Amazing, amazing stuff. Probably the most effective sermon in the history of Christianity. Okay, now let us get into this week's passage. Now Peter and John were going to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. The ninth hour for our purposes is 3 p.m. They had three major point times of prayer, uh, six, noon, and three. That isn't what they called it. They called it the first hour, the third hour, and and the ninth hour. Okay? I can tell you more about that, but I can also tell you that Christianity hadn't broken off from Judaism yet. Remember, when Jesus gave them their mission, they were to begin evangelizing. Phase one of the plan was to evangelize Jerusalem first. So not only did they not have the inclination to move on because this was what they knew. They didn't view themselves as Christians. The term Christian didn't even come along until Antioch. And in fact, the term itself was a derogatory term at first, when it first came out. But they were believers and followers of Christ. These 
the founders of what we call our faith, the Christian faith, were all Jewish. They were Jews, okay? And they viewed themselves truly as Jews, and rightly so. They were truer Jews than the Jewish religious establishment because they recognized, believed, and followed their Messiah when he, when he came. And so remember that. When you hear the term Messianic Jews, it's Jews who have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And there are Messianic Jews. In fact, there's a congregation of them here in Maine, down in Cape Elizabeth, I believe. And uh, they are brothers and sisters with the first century Christians, if you will. There we go. Got to push that button just right to make it work. <clears throat> and a man who had been unable to walk from birth was being carried, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order for him to beg for charitable gifts from those entering the temple grounds. Now, <clears throat> have you all been to the big city where, and you don't have to get into the big city, but it's more prevalent in the big city where you've seen beggars on the street? They're standing where the traffic is, where there's most likely, every once in a while you'll hear a police story, I mean a story that the police had to arrest someone because homeless people have gotten in a fight over their particular corner, their particular place. How many of you know or recognize that people who beg for money they're, amongst them, they have places that are far more valuable in which to beg because of the traffic. Not just the quantity of traffic, but the ease with which people can give them money. And in addition to that, the likelihood of which, or the percentage of which of those people will give them money. Well, the giving of alms, A-L-M-S, is, was part of that society, part of that religion. And so if you're outside the temple, and if you're uh, you know, there at the right time, which is, of course, the hour of prayer, you're going to get a lot of traffic. And it is, in fact, there was no welfare system in that day. This was it. And it, it was actually for someone like this man who was crippled from birth, this was a legitimate way for them to support themselves. Okay? There was simply no other way in those days for them to do so, in most cases. So this man is sitting, is being sat down by friends or family or whoever who probably carried him on some sort of a platform, whatever, and they put him in this prime location. Now, <clears throat> this gate called Beautiful, the first century historian Josephus describes this gate as being quite a number of feet tall, and I forget the exact dimension, but it is, I'm going to, some of you, I'm going to bring you back to a point of uh, a little bit of uh, reference from 
TV commercials from way back when. Who remembers Ricardo Montalban, the Cordoba, the Chrysler Cordoba, with rich Corinthian leather? <laughs> I, don't, I don't honestly don't know what the what the deal was with that rich Corinthian leather. I also remember from that same era the uh, TV character Alf, who spoke of a, a particular product he liked, which was made of genuine mock nagahide. Which, for those of you who know that reference, <laughs> is is there's no such thing as genuine mock nagahide. <laughs> I always think of those things. My brain, I watched way too much television going back then. I really, really did. Oh, such a wasted life. But anyway, <laughs> um, getting back to the Corinthian bronze that this gate was made of, it was huge. It was so huge that it took 20 men to open and close this gate. So palatial was this gate, called beautiful, it looked like it was gold because it was polished bronze. Imagine the contrast between this man who is a beggar outside this gate and imagine the tug. You know, you're walking into this palatial temple, the Herod's temple, and, you know, they had spent something like 80 years building this temple. 80 or 85 years, somewhere in that vicinity. And, in fact, it may well have still been under construction at the time of this going on. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was. In fact, they only finished the construction of it about six years before it was destroyed. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Spend 80 or 85 years building this palatial temple, and it is destroyed a mere six or seven years later. That's a story for another time. But imagine the contrast. So he's there on the temple, uh, waiting for people to enter the temple grounds, and he's begging for charitable donations. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple grounds, he began asking to receive a charitable gift. How many of you have noticed, if you're ever in the big city where there's more of these beggars, that uh, they have a pretty well-trained eye as to who is more likely to maybe give them a donation. They'll ignore certain people, and there are other people that they will turn to and maybe not look you in the eye, but they'll make a gesture to you. Well, the same thing is going on here. Why do I mention that? This, is man, this man is 40-plus years of age, according to all the references that I've looked up. He's been doing this for a long time. He's crippled since birth. Okay? In fact, the Greek language indicates that the crippling is in the ankles and the feet, or the heels. So apparently his feet were so obviously deformed that he, he could not stand or walk on his own. And being 40-plus years of age, and being this his regular spot, these folks knew him. And uh, so I dare say this is probably a pretty lucrative little begging business he had going on here. So he began asking to receive a charitable gift, verse 4, but Peter, along with John, looked at him intently. 
You know, when you're walking by somebody you don't want to give money to, do you look at them intently? No. So Peter, not only does he look at him intently, he says, look at us. There's even an exclamation point. Now, mind you, in the original language, there's no exclamation point. But the language indicates that there should be. Okay? And he gave them his attention, the beggar, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not have silver and gold, very famous quote, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. This is not a request, is it? It is a command. In the name of Jesus Christ. Now, what's the point of that? In that culture, and we understand it, those of us who study the Bible, it meant in that person's authority, in their essence, in their power. Peter said, I don't have gold or silver. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Everyone knew who Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, was. By this statement, Peter acts not on his own authority, but he is appealing to the risen Jesus himself to manifest his healing power. The healing marks, the healing here marks yet another instance of the ongoing work of Christ in the building of his church. You remember, for those of you who've been with me a while, been here at Shiloh for a while, I spent over a year going through the Gospel of John. We probably will be about the same amount of time going through this book of Acts. In the third chapter of John, just a couple of verses before that most famous verse, John 3.16, Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, came to Jesus. Uh, nope, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's later in my sermon. My apologies. <laughs> my apologies. Got a little off track there. I want to go back to John the Baptist here. John the Baptist. Remember in Luke chapter 7, verse 22, John the Baptist had sent out a couple of his disciples to see Jesus, because John is imprisoned and is not going to be very long before his head is going to be separated from his body and put on a platter. A little bit of a gruesome scene. But John, understandably, is having maybe some doubts. It doesn't say that explicitly in Scripture. But he sent a couple of the disciples to go out and to confirm if Jesus was the, was the one that they had been looking for. And it says more than that, but in verse 22, to narrow it down, Jesus answered them when they asked that question, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. People who were blind receive sight. People who limped walk. People with leprosy are cleansed, and people who were deaf hear. Dead people are raised up, and the people who are poor have the gospel preached to them. These were clear prophesied signs in the Old Testament that the Messiah would perform when he was here, when he arrived. This was clear, unmistakable, fulfilled prophecy that miracles were happening, and in fact, miracles were not, a lot of people ha have this tendency to believe that miracles were common in the Bible. They were not. 
They were very rare, just like they're very rare now. They were very rare then, except in the time of Jesus. In the Old Testament, the prophets were known. You look at where all the miracles are. I looked up where all the miracles happened in the Bible. You know how many? Let me ask you a question. How many of you know how many miracles were performed in the Old Testament? I looked it up. It's 56. You know how many miracles Jesus, how many were recorded? He did a lot more than that. We know that because John says so. How many miracles were recorded that Jesus did in the four Gospels? Anybody know? There's a little dispute on that. 36 or 37, depending on how you want to count a miracle. I think that 37th one is his own resurrection. That's my guess. <clears throat> you know how many were done in the book of Acts that we're studying now? Anybody? 18. 18. Okay, now that the trivia time is over, <laughs> we'll get on with it. <clears throat> so, this sign that John the Baptist took and his disciples took was a sign that the Messiah had come. <clears throat> Peter and the other apostles are carrying on the ministry of Christ. They are performing. Remember, Jesus said, you'll do even greater works. That has already happened with the 3,000 coming to faith in Christ at the end of Peter's sermon, the first sermon. So, in fact, the apostles are a substantial part of the foundation. Remember, I spoke last week about Jesus being the cornerstone of the foundation. The apostles are part of that foundation, and they are, in fact, laying the foundation of the church. So, here we are. Verse 7, And grasping him by the right hand, he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. Immediately. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Can you imagine the joy this man was experiencing? <laughs> Try not to get too excited here, okay? Calm down. <laughs> But can you imagine? Can you imagine the joy? And I think it's worth noting the curious mingling of the divine and the human here. Peter grabs him by the right hand. I can visualize it. And just lifts him up off the ground. Now Peter, a strong, rugged fisherman, he probably didn't have a problem doing that. This guy probably didn't weigh a whole heck of a lot, I'm guessing. So he lifts him up off the ground. That's the human part. Instantly, the feet, the heels, the ankles that were so deformed he could not stand before. Instantly, he can stand. Instantly, what does he do? Does he run away? Ooh, I got to go show everybody. What does he do? He didn't run off somewhere else. He wanted to go with the apostles into the temple. Into the temple. And what is he doing here in verse 8? He's leaping. 
<laughs> I can't even do that now. He stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and what? Praising God. As miraculous as it is that his feet that have never been functional his entire life have been instantly healed. The greater miracle is, I believe this man is now a blood-bought, born-again child of the living God in the name of Jesus Christ. That is, in fact, the greatest miracle. Do you know that by the same Holy Spirit, you can play a role in that very same miracle when you lead someone to Jesus by sharing the gospel with one of those gospel tracts that we have out here? We're getting more, by the way. Gospels of John, or just, there's, you know, there are uh, electronic tracks that you can just text to somebody. Did you know that? I'm drawing a blank on the name of one right now, but there's one by the Billy Graham Association. Peacewithgod.org, I think it's called. That's one by the Billy Graham Association. Okay. Next verse. And all the people saw him walking and what? Praising God. And they recognized him as being the very one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg for charitable gifts. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Okay. What's the point of this miracle? What's going on? Is there a point to this? Or is it just a really nice show? Wow! Well, I'm here to tell you that Scripture, every point and place where there are miracles performed, there's a purpose for it. There's a pattern to it. Very often, more often than not, in fact, there is a message to follow. Now, we're not going to cover that message this week. Let me take a moment to put in a shameless plug for Pastor Emeritus Ron Parker, who's going to be preaching here next week in my place. Thank you, Pastor Ron. And he is going to have a special guest I will not name. But uh, she will not be going out live over Facebook for security reasons. But, nonetheless, Pastor Ron... Pastor Emeritus Ron Parker will be preaching next week. So if you want to see a true professional rather than the guy standing up here now, <laughs> come see Ron. I'm, I'm kidding, folks. Really, I'm kidding. He's not that good. No. <laughs> I, I finally got a laugh. There you go. <laughs> All right, I finally got a laugh. You, you don't know how hard I try to get a laugh. Most of the time, failing. All right, <laughs> get back on track here. This man was more than 40 years old. The fact that the beggar had lain daily at the door of the temple made him a familiar sight. Now that he was healed, the miracle was necessarily generally known. The people could not deny that a mighty miracle had taken place. But what was the meaning of it all? 
I mentioned before, 56 miracles in the Old Testament, 36 or 37 recorded by, by Jesus, a lot more than that were done, and 18 in Acts. Okay, and they were, all these miracles are all done, mostly, as a precursor, as a preparation for people to hear a message, and it was done as a way of accrediting or authenticating, as I mentioned, authentication ahead of time. And now is when I go to Nicodemus. <laughs> John chapter 3. Remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, we know that you are from God because no one could do all the signs and wonders that you do if God were not with him. Well, the same type of miracles and that stuff are being done by the apostles. Let's move this along, shall we? 1 John 4, 1. 1 John, later on, uh, the apostle John wrote an epistle, the first of three. And he wrote this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are all kinds of false prophets then. There are all kinds of false prophets now. I don't know that the, perhaps there's been any time in human history that, where that was not the case. And a lot of them could do all kinds of tricks, you know. Uh, I can't even name the famous magicians, but they do, they do tricks. And a lot of them, the false prophets, were doing it for notoriety, doing it for power, doing it for money. They had all kinds of reasons for doing it. And it wasn't, as a general rule of thumb, for glory, glorifying anyone else other than them. What distinguishes the prophets and the apostles of God is that they are doing it for the glory of God. They are doing it in order to preach a message from God, to deliver a message. And in fact, that is the case in the book of Acts, and it is the case in the New Testament, just like it is in the Old Testament. So, the word spirit here probably refers uh, to teachers, but uh, it doesn't have to just apply to teachers. I mentioned Nicodemus, so there it is. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I already said that. Verse, chapter 10, verse 25 this is another segment. Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Okay? These are folks that are not listening. They don't believe Jesus, but he has, he's doing miracles of his own, lots and lots of them, to authenticate his message, to authenticate who he is. And he does them in his Father's name, the authority of the Father. <clears throat> Verse 37 and 38, Jesus again, if I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me. Okay? Again, even the Messiah is using the works as authentication because it was part of Jewish law. You had to have a witness. Had to have a couple of witnesses for that matter. Jesus didn't really need them, but he was keeping the law. My Father, if... I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, 
In other words, the miracles. So that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. You got it? Are you with me? Say amen. amen. Thank you. Verse 11, 14, verse 11. John, excuse me, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Again, I'm emphasizing this point. The point of the miracles was authentication. Okay? You understand? Even the Messiah himself, the miracles were pointing to authenticating who he was. Paul speaks to this issue about the apostles later on. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, he says he writes this, the distinguishing marks of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles. Okay? So, you get what I'm, where I'm going here? What's the point of the miracles? The message that follows. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, through who? The Lord. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. Heard what? Heard stuff spoken through the Lord. Okay, that's how you understand that. Who was that? The apostles. The ones who were called Jesus' disciples are now his apostles. Okay? Disciples are learners and followers, students. Apostles are those who have graduated and have been sent by the Lord to do what? To deliver a message. Whose message? God's message. The point of the miracles. To authenticate them as messengers and the message they had. Okay? It was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, by way of the miracles, by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to whose own will? God's own will. His own will. Okay. Let's wrap this up. Miracles in the book of Acts were always performed by the apostles and in rare exceptions by their close co-workers in ministry. No miracle was ever performed without an apostle being physically present, at least that I'm aware of. If I am wrong, I offer up this challenge. You can straighten me out because I do make mistakes. In fact, those of you who have been here any period of time, you saw me make mistakes this morning, and you've seen me make mistakes for more than two years, almost on a weekly basis. Okay? It's okay. Search the Scriptures and see that what I'm telling you is true. Be like the Bereans. All right? If I get something wrong, straighten me out. Okay? All right. No miracle. There we go. Nearly every miraculous healing in Acts was done to a non-believer. Huh? What? Yeah, it's true. There are some references there for you to look it up. There was an exception. He was partaking in the Lord's Supper. Eutychus, I think his name was. Am I getting that name right? Yeah. Yeah, Paul healed him. And uh, that's an exception. 
there may be another one, but uh, that's what I've figured out. So, now, how do we close this thing? Well, you know, illustrations. And in fact, <clears throat> this is bad form, but I'll put it right out there. My preacher's source book of illustrative sermon ideas on the subject of healing. And the reason I brought the whole book is because I have more than one. And I'm not going to read all of them that's in here. I'm, I wouldn't do that to you. But I want to point out Miracles still do happen. Why? Because God is still sovereign. Miracles still do happen. But the apostolic miracles, the apostles having the, doing these miracles to deliver the gospel had a very specific purpose. When God does miracles nowadays, it has... It may be because somebody is delivering a message, but in general, I want you to know that throughout church history, there have been a number of cases where miracles have happened. Warren Wearsby says, ultimate healing and glorification of the body are certainly among the blessings of Calvary for the believing Christian. Immediate healing, though, is not guaranteed. God can heal any disease, but he is not obligated to do so. I want you to understand that. We all have known someone, perhaps loved someone very dearly, for whom we prayed for healing who was not healed. Okay? Excuse me. God does not always heal us. And in fact, Johnny Erickson Tata prayed fervently and believed sincerely all of the people involved if you know who Johnny Erickson Tata is, she's paralyzed from the neck down or somewhere thereabouts, shoulders down, something like that, from a bad uh, swimming accident. She is one of the most effective teachers in God's kingdom in our era. And she speaks to that. And, she, and I, I won't go into her entire story, but it is in here, her testimony to that fact. Martin Luther, anybody heard of him? I'm not talking Martin Luther King Jr. I'm talking Martin Luther from, you know, way back when. <laughs> uh, there are documented cases of miracles where he prayed and people were healed, saved from death. There are excerpts from John Wesley's diary to that effect. Okay? But let me close with this story that I'm going to read to you. And this, I hope, will drive home the point of why I preached this sermon today the way I did. And here's the story. The title is The 66-Cent Solution. Missionaries Dick Hillis and Margaret Humphrey were married on April 18, 1938, in a little house in Hankow, China. The only wedding music was the percussion of Japanese bombs in the distance. They moved into a drab, mud-brick house and settled into a flurry of missionary activity. Seven months later, Margaret showed symptoms of fever. It rapidly worsened, and Dick anguished as it rose to 103 degrees, then to 105 degrees. With no doctor in the village and no adequate transportation to the distant hospital, he felt helpless. 
he prayed, but sensed no response from God. Why? Why doesn't God answer? He couldn't take her from me. He knows I need her, not just for myself, but for the work also. As he knelt by Margaret's bed, gripping her torrid hand, a sentence came to mind from a letter his father had written before his marriage. Quote, Remember, Dick, if you are really in love, you will face the danger of loving the gift more than the giver. Oh, God, Dick cried, you have given me so much to love in Margaret. Is it possible I have loved her too much? The closing words of 1 John flashed to mind, quote, Little children, keep yourselves from idols, end quote. Knowing the Lord was working deeply in his heart, Dick knelt a long time praying, quote, Lord, I give Margaret back to you. If you require it, I will walk to her grave, still trusting you. But if you will raise her up, I will always seek to put you first. End quote. Peace came over him, allowing him to rest. The next morning, when Margaret's temperature still hovered at 105 degrees, Dick decided to visit the local Chinese herb shop. The aged proprietor there found a small glass vial that a traveling medicine man had sold him two years previously. It was supposed to reduce fever. Dick purchased the solution for 66 cents, then hurried home and gave Margaret the injection. Her temperature began to go down, and two weeks later, she was good as new. I tell you that story to drive home the point. There are folks in the body of Christ, genuine believers, who are so focused on miracles, so focused on the gift, that I think they're getting their focus a little askewed. I want you to understand, sometimes God performs miracles. But our God is sovereign. He has a plan. He has a purpose. It is according to his will that these things happen. And so I say this to you, those of you who have prayed for a miracle and didn't get it. You are not alone and God is still sovereign and still loves you and still is able. I want you to know that. I want you to be encouraged by that. Scripture says that it is appointed, it is appointed unto man, mankind once to die, and then the judgment. None of us are getting out of this world alive. Now we will, in a manner of speaking, be eternally alive. But I want you to understand the context of miracles and know that God still does miracles, but he's not obligated. Just remember that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you that you are a miracle-making God. Father, help us to grow in our love and our understanding of you, to know that when we pray for those miracles, even on those times, in those times, where it seems that the answer is no, or maybe that you weren't listening, 
Help us to know, Lord, that that is simply not true. That you do know us, that you do love us, that you perform miracles according to your sovereign plan and according to your sovereign purposes. Thank you, Lord, that you do, that you love us, that you loved us first. Bless us and help us to remember this, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.